drives in the United States is one of the most pretty uh, drives, one of the prettiest drives in the United States, is the drive up the central coast of California. Uh, there's stunning natural beauty for most of the drive, and if you're into the created, uh, creative man-made beauty of art and architecture, along that drive is Hearst Castle. So uh, William Randolph Hearst uh, inherited a media empire from his father that was worth, uh, adjusted for inflation, hundreds of millions of dollars in our own money. And with that, he expanded his media empire, and he built a palatial home uh, in the hills of San Simeon. Uh, in fact, he built it on property the family owned and that the family had used for camping vacations when he was growing up as a boy. And, uh, of course, Hearst died back in the 50s, and uh, in the 50s, he, the family donated Hearst Castle to the state of California. It's a state park. You can tour it. And if you're ever able to go tour Hearst Castle, one of the things you'll immediately notice is that William Randolph Hearst was a great collector of art. The castle is stuffed full with all kinds of art, not just paintings, but statuary and uh, all kinds of like, cabinets, furniture from Europe, uh, ceilings from Europe, all kinds of uh, amazing works of art. Uh, and uh, his castle is so crowded with art, and his passion for art was so renowned uh, that Orson Welles satirized it in the movie Citizen Kane right? Uh, the art collector and the art dealer, um, Sir Joseph Duveen, who was the most influential European art dealer of that generation, he worked with Hearst to help Hearst locate European art, and he called Hearst the great accumulator. Because even though William Randolph Hearst's primary residence was Hearst Castle, he also owned six massive homes. And even though he owned massive ho multiple homes that were massive, he collected so much art, he couldn't display all of it, and so by the end of his life, he had six warehouses full of artworks that he didn't have enough room to display in his homes. And there's a, a legendary story that the tour guides there at the, uh, depending on the tour guide you get, they'll tell you this story uh, at the castle. Uh, there's this apocryphal story that one day, Hearst was reading a book in a, 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 he was reading an art history book, and he read about a piece and saw a black and white photo of a piece that he just had to have, and so he dispatched his uh, art agent to Europe to go find it, and this agent was gone for months scouring Europe, but not able to find the piece where they thought they could find it, uh, trying to track down leads, traveling all over. Finally, his art agent came back in defeat uh, and let him know he couldn't find it, and months later, the piece was finally located. You know where it was? It was in his way. It was in one of the warehouses he had. He, years earlier, he had already bought the piece, but back then, he wasn't excited enough about it to put it on display. But it was his all along. The, the piece he was looking for, he already had. And I share that story because we do experience something similar in the Christian life. Sometimes we long for a spiritual resource that admittedly we don't have, okay? But many times we actually long for things that if we would pay attention to the, the text of God's Word, we would realize we actually already have. We already possess what we need, and sometimes the lesson we need to learn in the Christian life 
is to better understand and possess what we already have through Christ. Uh, That's the idea, I believe, behind the content of Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus that we're going to look at today. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 1, verse 15. Uh, We're in a paragraph at the beginning of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus where Paul is explaining how he prays for them. And we saw last week that he prayed regularly for them with thanksgiving for their faith in Christ and also for their love for their fellow Christians. And as we move through this paragraph, it's going to take me uh, three Sundays. This is the second Sunday. It's going to take me three Sundays in all. As we're moving through this paragraph, I've decided to preach this paragraph as a model prayer for us, a model for how we can offer up intercessory prayers for the spiritual advancement of our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you want to grow in your prayer life, there are many excellent books written by good Christian thinkers that can help you grow, but the book that's best for helping you grow in prayer is the Bible itself. Because in the Bible, we not only have the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples, the Lord's Prayer, when the disciples came to Him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. We not only have that offered to us as a model prayer, I believe the Spirit has recorded the prayers of godly men and women because the Spirit also intends us to learn from those prayers as well. And this prayer of the Apostle Paul, I'm suggesting, is a prayer we can learn a lot from. So let's look again at the content of Paul's prayer. Please follow along with me while I read Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 19 this morning. Uh, Paul says, "'For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we study now the idea of the eyes of our hearts being enlightened, help us to understand what this enlightenment is and why the Apostle talks this way. We need this enlightenment, so come, illumine our hearts and minds, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Last week, we began to study this prayer, and I'm outlining it in in three elements. There are three aspects of Paul's prayer. And the first uh, aspect we discover is the reason for prayer in verse 15, namely that God has adopted us, and when He adopted us into His family as sons and daughters, He put us in a family with brothers and sisters in Christ, and those brothers and sisters help us on our heavenly journey but we are also meant to help them, and one of the greatest ways we can help them is by offering up prayers uh, on behalf of our brothers and sisters for their spiritual growth and their spiritual advancement. And then secondly, we looked at at the pattern of how Paul prayed for the Ephesians. He prayed for them regularly, and he did more than just Uh, make requests of God about the problems they had and the difficulties they faced. He also offered thanksgiving for them. In other words, his godly concern and even his critical observations of where they needed to grow 
those were mingled with thanksgiving. It wasn't just all trouble from start to finish and a grocery list of requests. There was thanksgiving and and, and affection that he had for them. His intercession included thanks. It wasn't just requests, and I think that's something we all can learn from. But then when it came to Paul's actual requests, that's the third point in our outline, we began to look at the content of what he prayed for them, and he prayed, first of all, for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to be given them that would result in them having a true knowledge of God, not a demon knowledge of God that sees that God is holy and sees that God is triune and that can confess like the demons who Jesus cast out during His earthly ministry, that can confess Jesus is the Holy One of God and yet they hate Him, not that kind of knowledge, but a true, intimate, thorough, loving knowledge of God. Uh, that, that, that's the kind of knowledge we're talking about. And I said last week that in general terms, what Paul prayed for in verse 17 is what English-speaking theologians have called illumination. Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit giving understanding whenever the Scriptures are heard and read, but it's not just a cognitive understanding of the content of God's Word. It's an understanding where the heart is inclined to believe it and accept it and cherish it and love it. Now, the content of Paul's prayer runs, in our outline, from verse 17 all the way down to verse 23. And again, in in theological terms, it's for illumination. But notice this, there are two different kinds of illumination Paul prays for. Um, The first is an illumination that opens people's eyes to the true knowledge of God Himself. But as you move into verse 18, Paul prays for a second kind of illumination. It's the kind of illumination that helps Christians know and rejoice in the good gifts God has given. Look again at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know. Again, he wants us to know something, and he wants us to know about three amazing gifts of God. He wants us to know about the hope of our calling, the riches of God's inheritance in us, and the surpassing greatness of God's power to deliver on all His promises to us. So again, this morning, Paul wants us to know something. But in verse 18, it's a knowledge that comprehends and values and is grateful for and delights in the gifts God has given us. But before we look at those gifts, we need to stop and consider the provocative language, I think it's provocative, that Paul uses in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, a heart with eyeballs. That's, that's interesting language. We need to get our arms around it. So, let's slow down and, and talk about what it would mean for our hearts to have eyes. Let's start, and this is obviously a parable. Uh, he's, he's using language in the physical realm to illustrate something in the spiritual realm. In the physical realm, what are eyes for? Well, they're for seeing the physical reality of what's there. They are for seeing what's out there physically so that we don't bump into it or trip over it or uh, accidentally fall off a cliff we didn't perceive was there. Our eyes are perceiving reality. Now, there is an extent to which we like to exalt the imagination. The imagination is a God-given thing. I think it's a good thing, and it has a place in the Christian life. But in the physical realm, 
You don't want your imagination leading blind eyes when you're dying of thirst and trying to locate water in a desert, right? You want open eyes to the reality of where that water can be found. And so, what Paul's praying for is that God would open the eyes of our souls to see the spiritual realities that surround us. And then notice he also is talking about uh, not just eyes, but the eyes of our hearts. In the Bible, the heart is the control center of a person. I'm tempted to say, uh, to use a computer illustration uh, and say it's the operating system of a person internally. Um, And in the Bible, there is no simple distinction between the heart and the mind like we like to make in, uh, in English, in American culture. In the Bible, we have to say this, the heart and mind are both included in this one big term, the heart. Uh, Because in the Bible, the heart includes how a person thinks. It includes cognition and how a person thinks and their logic and how they strategize, but it also includes passion language, what people love and hate and crave and are hunger, uh, hunger for, what they desire. So, it's both passion and thinking. That's our hearts. And so, the enlightenment Paul speaks of here is an enlightenment whereby our souls would see and perceive the value, the worth, the greatness, and the delight of knowing God for who He really is, verse 17, and also of the good gifts He's given to those who believe. Now, the fact that we're going to be talking about good gifts that God gives His children here raises a very important conversation that we have to have as conservative evangelical Protestants, okay? One of the distinctions that evangelical pastors like me tend to make is a distinction between loving God and loving the gifts of God, and often the exhortation follows very closely after making that distinction, uh, the exhortation follows that we shouldn't love the gifts more than the giver of the good gifts. And there's a very important reason for that. The reason is because uh, in our day, the most, one of the most popular false gospels out there is the prosperity gospel. What does the prosperity gospel do? It comes along and it promises people the good gifts of God in the form of financial wealth and good health, and those are the kinds of gifts that the fallen heart idolizes, right? That all through the Old and New Testament, there's warnings about not making an idol out of money. The fallen heart idolizes those things. But what the prosperity gospel does is it comes and it promises those gifts to people if people will give God um, some kind of allegiance or loyalty or service or worship, and then the idea is that then God will give you those, those gifts, and it's a way for you to seek the gifts through, through God to get your, get your hands on them. And the problem with the prosperity gospel is that the, the idolatry for those things that comes naturally to the human heart, that is never confronted, number one, And number two, the prosperity gospel never talks about our debt of sin and the fact that there's a day of judgment coming and that we need a Savior. So, it never warns people to flee from our rebellion and sin against God and and confess what we've done and seek forgiveness through Christ. It, It never actually gives the good news of the true gospel. It's a false gospel. And so, because of that, wise shepherds uh, like to regularly uh, exhort people not to love the good gifts of God uh, more than uh, God who is the giver. Um, now, 
there's a problem with that in this passage. Notice the context of the gifts Paul is talking about here. Is he writing to the Ephesians about God giving us money and good health? No, that's not at all what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual benefits, the hope of our calling, the riches of God's inheritance in us, His power to deliver on the promise to redeem us. That's what He's talking about. These are benefits you would have to love God to even appreciate in the first place. Uh, And when it comes to these gifts, God uh, is a proud gift giver. Uh, Maybe we could illustrate it this way. Have you ever received a gift from a loved one or a friend? And they're so excited about this gift they found for you that they're like, they're like, they're shaking. I mean, they can't even sit still. They're so excited about this gift. They, they're so proud of it too. They think it's the best gift ever. It's going to be way better than all the other gifts those schmucks are giving you. It, they're just so proud. Of, and you realize, you realize, oh no, like when I, whatever, when I open whatever is in that box, I better be genuinely excited or act like it, because if they can see I don't like it, they're going to be deflated, right? And so you open the gift, and of course, it was, an, it was a wonderful gift, not just in objective terms that other people could look at and say, oh, that was a very thoughtful gift. But one of the things that made the gift so wonderful is that they bought the gift for you like they actually know you and they know what you like, right? They found this gift that was like perfect for your personality and the things you're interested in, and they were proud of their gift. Well, I think there's a parallel in this passage. God is a proud giver of these three gifts, and He wants us to see these gifts as valuable and appreciate them. In other words, in other words, what I'm saying is this. The implication of what Paul is saying is that we need the eyes of our hearts opened to appreciate these gifts, which means the danger we're in is not that when I preach these gifts, you could walk away from the sermon loving them more than God who's the giver of every good thing. The danger that we face is that we either uh, are ignorant of these gifts or we know about them, but we don't value them the way we ought, and we don't value them the way we ought to the point of offending God, who's proud of the gift, and of harming our own spiritual, uh, our spiritual growth. So that's the threat as I see it in the paragraph. So let me just put you on notice. What I'm not going to do is preach the good gifts of God in a way that encourages your heart and then throw a wet blanket on it at the end of the sermon and say, but don't you, don't you go loving these more than you love God. I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's appropriate with this passage. Paul... Paul is concerned that we don't love these gifts as much as we should, that we, don't, that we don't value how important they are, and so he wants us to comprehend it. And so, so that's the way I'm going to uh, uh, approach these gifts when we look at them. Um, so the big picture here is this then. Paul is praying for the Ephesians that they would truly know God and that they would truly appreciate the gifts he's given them, and the pathway to that goal is the eyes of their hearts being enlightened. So what that means, what I'm going to argue, is that these two expressions, being given, verse 17, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, and having the eyes of your heart enlightened, 
I'm arguing that they're both praying for the same spiritual reality, the reality of illumination, or what we might call for the purposes of this sermon, the great enlightenment. And by the great enlightenment, I don't mean, for those of you who like history, right, the intellectual movement in the 17th and 18th century that was way too optimistic about how far our physical senses and human reason can get us. They were way too optimistic about it. I'm not talking about that enlightenment. I'm talking about a very personal kind of enlightenment to the benefits, the gifts God gives His children that every Christian needs. And this enlightenment is so foundational that before moving forward to talk about the three gifts, I just want to make a couple observations about this enlightenment. Uh, First observation. This enlightenment is a slow process of growth. It's not like a uh, one and done or overnight, okay? And the reason I say that is because notice the way, notice who Paul's praying for. Paul is praying for Christians, which means the implication of that is that when you come to Christ, you don't like come to Christ and then know everything you need to know for the Christian life a week later. Yes, when you came to Christ, your spiritually blind eyes were given sight. When you were born again, your eyes were given sight to see the value and worth of knowing Christ. But that doesn't mean that you saw or see now 2020, right? It doesn't mean you have healthy spiritual vision. Uh, The implication of the passage is that your eyes were weak, they still are weak, but they will grow in perception, the eyes of your soul will grow in perceiving reality as you grow in Christ, as you grow to know God and as you grow to appreciate these gifts. Second observation about this enlightenment. This enlightenment isn't something we can produce for ourselves or for others. We have to pray for it. We need the Holy Spirit's help. You see, the Holy Spirit moved prophets and apostles to write the Holy Scriptures. And within the Scriptures, we have everything we need for life and godliness and pleasing God in this life. This is a perfect book, but the problem is the readers. The the problem is us, the readers, because when we read this book, we can either be dull or apathetic at best. At worst, we resist and reject the portions we don't like in it, and so something has to be done about the readers. The readers are messed up people. Something has to be done about them. So, in other words, the Holy Spirit He inspired a perfect book to cure our spiritual sickness, but we're so messed up, we need Him to help us be better readers of the book uh, in order to not only to understand it, but also to embrace it. So, we need to pray for ourselves and pray for our loved ones to grow in this regard. We need God's help grasping spiritual reality for ourselves in a way that we actually, we love it and we embrace it. Uh, The Westminster Catechism, uh, the Shorter Catechism, expresses it this way with reference to Christ. In In the Shorter Catechism, they have this whole section about Christ and about His offices as prophet, priest, and king. And this is what the Catechism has you learn when you get to Christ as prophet. Question, why do you need Christ as a prophet? Answer, because I'm ignorant and in need of a teacher. Now, I don't know about you, but like, 
I, I agree with the catechism, but I'm a little offended. It's like, well, I need to grow. I don't, not, I, I don't know as much as I ought, and that which I do know I don't apply. But do I have to call myself ignorant? Really? Come on. That's hard to swallow. Uh, but but that's, a good, that's a good prayer. That points in the direction we need to move. Have you ever prayed before you study Scripture, Lord, I'm spiritually ignorant. I need to teach. Incline my heart to your word. Show me beautiful things from your word. Help me to understand it and love it. Those are the kinds of prayers we need to pray for ourselves before we study Scripture and pray for our loved ones. And so the implication of Paul's language then is that we need God's help with this, and we can't achieve this enlightenment on our own independent of of His help. And then the third observation I would make about this enlightenment is that it is essential for our spiritual growth. The gifts Uh, that God gives us in verses 18 through 23 are already a reality. They already belong to us, but Paul is clearly concerned that Christians don't understand and value them. Uh, S. Lewis Johnson explains it this way, our problem is we need to learn how to possess our possessions. In our own day, I believe there's much confusion about spiritual growth. Some people think it happens through a moment of decision where I surrender myself more fully to God, or others think it happens through a moving emotional experience in a worship service or at a conference. Still others pursue spiritual growth through Bible knowledge. Now, let me just say, I believe there is a place for all three of those things in the Christian life. Having surrendered ourselves to Jesus as Lord when we came to faith, we still find in the Christian life that it's easy to pick up the purposes of our own life and and work for our kingdom to come and our will to be done on earth, and so we have to repent of that. We we have to uh, periodically re-surrender, if you will, to the Lord. And so I'm I'm not against the idea of a moment of decision where we surrender more fully to the Lord as we ought to. We need to do that at appropriate times. Uh, Also, um, we actually do want our emotions to be moved. Now, we want our emotions to be moved in worship services, not just for the purpose of having an emotional experience, as as if, uh, in contrast to the rest of society, we found some way to get a buzz off of religion. It's not that, but the reason we want our emotions to be moved is because we want our emotions to match the spiritual realities that a good worship service and a good Christian conference conference is explaining and awakening awakening us to. We don't want to be spiritually backward people where uh, when we uh, sing a song with amazing lyrics about Christ, we're just like yawning. We, We don't want to be that way. So, we do want our emotions to be moved in the right way. And also, we need to say this about Bible knowledge. Bible knowledge is a necessary prerequisite for growing Uh, spiritually, right? We need it, but our spiritual growth only happens when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened to the reality of who God is and the gifts He's given us through Christ. And the problem is just growing in uh, raw knowledge of Bible information isn't enough. So, we have to pray for spiritual enlightenment. This then makes prayer a huge priority for us, a huge priority for us as we study Scripture, praying that the Lord would open our eyes, and a huge priority as we pray for our brothers and sisters. Now, as we consider this great enlightenment, as I'm calling it, Paul prays specifically that we will come to a true knowledge of God, true knowledge of these three gifts, 
God is a proud gift giver. He, he, he's proud of these gifts. He wants us to enjoy them. He wants us to value them. And you can spot what the three gifts are in these remaining verses of the paragraph by locating the word what. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. So these are the three spiritual gifts Paul wants us, through the work of the Spirit, to comprehend and value. Now let's be honest when you look at that list. Do you read that list and say to yourself, wow, it's, that list, it looks like it came straight out of my prayer journal. It's just, it's so nice, you know, you, you, you try to give yourself to prayer, and it's just so nice to receive some apostolic affirmation that I'm headed in the right direction. I'm, I'm barking up the right tree. Is that what you thought? Because I can tell you it's not what I thought. I don't pray this way. And, and, and as I listen to our corporate prayers, I don't think we as a church tend to pray this way. And so, so I'm going to admit, we don't pray this way, starting with me as pastor. I'm confessing. I'm guilty. But I think we need to learn to pray this way for ourselves and each other. So let's unpack each of these three gifts so we can grow in understanding and appreciating them. And I'm going to admit that uh, I'm not going to get through all three gifts today. We're just going to get to the first one today. We'll look at the next two uh, next week. The first gift that we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened to know is the hope of His calling. Now, before we under- can understand this, we have to understand both hope and, and, and calling. So, let's talk about the word calling here. The word calling was used in Greek culture for calling soldiers to attention or for an invitation to a feast or for a summons to court. And uh, just as there are two kinds of knowledge, and so last week when I talked about the knowledge of God, I had to labor it talking about how we're not talking about a demon knowledge that has orthodox understanding of who God is but hates Him. Uh, It's not that kind of knowledge. There's two different kinds of knowledge. There's a demon knowledge and there's a loving knowledge. In the same way, there's two callings in the New Testament. The first sense of the word calling or, or called is used of an invitation or a summons that can be sinfully disregarded. The second sense of the word calling in the New Testament is of God calling someone, and they respond in obedience to that call, often because of His drawing, because of His uh, drawing them to Himself. These two senses of the word calling, then, have led Bible scholars down through the history of the church to conclude that just as I was saying there's two different kinds of knowledge, there's two different kinds of calling in the New Testament. There is what we might call the general or external call of the gospel, and then there's the effectual internal call of the gospel, where a person not only hears the gospel and understands it, but they respond in faith and repentance. Wayne Grudem explains the effectual call this way. An effectual call is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which He summons people to Himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. Jesus gives a parable that illustrates the difference between these two callings. Allow me to read it for you uh, for your own reference. It's in Luke 14. Uh, Jesus gave this parable, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. 
The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. Now, Luke told us in that paragraph I just read, he told us explicitly that these are excuses. But what I want to make sure you see is that these are not just excuses. These are lame excuses, and we are meant to see it. They don't want to come to this dinner, but admitting it would be offensive, and so they're giving lame excuses. I bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it? No one buys a piece of land sight unseen, especially in ancient Israel, because not all the land is usable. Not all the land in Israel is arable. Of course you're not going to buy a piece of land without looking at it. This man already knows what he bought. He's already inspected this land. He doesn't need to go look at it. Lame excuse. Uh, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Well, in an agricultural society, it's imperative that the oxen you buy are healthy, not lame or sick. Uh, you wouldn't buy any of them without knowing their condition and inspecting them first. This is not a legitimate excuse. Or, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. Well, you know, many of you know that in the law of Moses, uh, God gave exemptions for married men the first year they were married. For instance, they didn't have to go to war with the other, the other men of Israel. And I think that was a, an excellent law that God made. It, it was meant to help uh, mar- young married couples, newlyweds, create a firm foundation for their marriage, to, to build the, the friendship of their marriage the first year, hopefully, Lord willing, to be creating good habits in that first year of marriage. And yet, skipping a, a feast, a dinner invitation, that was never the intent of the… that's never listed as an exemption in the law. This is also a flimsy excuse. So, they all give these excuses, and uh, verse 21 of Luke 14, the slave came back and reported to his master, then… Uh, reported to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to the slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And I really wish I could see the look on the slave's face for this next part because he says, master, what you commanded has already been done and there's still room. Yeah, the master's angry, and I have to report to him, we already did what he wanted, and yet there's still room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. The reason I share this parable is because in this parable, the first group who were invited that give excuses, they're an illustration of the general call, the general calling. But the second group who comes to the feast, they're a picture of the second kind of calling, the effectual call. And over in Matthew 22, when Jesus is giving a similar parable, He ends with these words, for many are called, but few are chosen. So, there is a a parallel in the mind of our Lord Jesus between the effectual call and being chosen, which I believe if you, if you understand that and then read Ephesians 1.18 through that lens, you understand that Paul is pointing us back by talking about our calling. He's pointing us back to being chosen by God to adoption as His sons and daughters, which Paul talked about back in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter. So then what does this calling include for us? What benefits does, 
does it have? Well, Paul elaborates on this calling in Romans 8. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom He called, He also justified, and these whom He justified, He also glorified. So according to Romans 8, the hope of our calling includes within it being justified, which in biblical language means that in the courtroom of God's law, we are pronounced not guilty, actually we're pronounced righteous, because even though we are guilty, Christ already paid the penalty for our rebellion on the cross, and, and God doesn't punish the same sin twice. And then uh, Paul says in Romans 8, not only do we receive that gift of pardon, justification, we also receive the gift of glorification. In other words, in the life to come, God will give us a perfect body that is incorruptible, undefiled. It, it'll never uh, get sick or age or die again, and we will not only have uh, glorified bodies, we will also have perfected souls. We receive glorification. But we also need to understand the hope of our calling. We also have to reckon with this word hope. It is crucial to understand that the Greek word for hope and the English word for hope get used differently. In English, we use the word hope this way. Question, do you think the Washington Commanders will ever win a Super Bowl again? Answer, hope so. I hope so. It, I'm not guessing it's going to happen any season soon, and uh, in the long run, there's no guarantee that it'll ever happen again, but I hope so. See, and what we're doing with the word hope there is hope is being used for a wish, or maybe we could say it this way, hope is being used for a desire, but it's a desire that's uncertain. There's no certainty that it'll actually happen until we get new ownership. Um, uh, but the Greek word for hope is used with the idea of certainty, and it includes both the desire we have, but also the certainty of what we hope for coming to pass. So, in the Greek New Testament, maybe we could say it this way, hope is the absolute certainty and expectation of something God's promised us, but that we haven't yet received. Notice then the impact of what Paul is saying. The hope of our calling is an objective reality. According to Romans 8, we are justified. In fact, in, back in Romans 8, when Paul talks about being glorified, he uses the past tense. And I think one reason he's doing it, it's not just to be gram grammatically correct, I think he uses the past tense to communicate it's as good as done. I mean, yes, it hasn't happened yet, we're still waiting for it, but we might as well consider it done. That's how sure it is. I think that, that might be why he's using the past tense there. And so, other in other words, Paul is praying that, look, these are ours already, but he's praying that we would come to have a subjective, experiential, uh, personal knowledge of this hope that is ours. What promises are offered in the hope of our calling? Well, I've already talked about justification, glorification. Another one is righteousness. Even though we've been legally declared righteous, uh, that doesn't mean that we are practically righteous all the time, but in the life to come, we will be made perfectly righteous. We will have perfected souls uh, that will be free from sin and temptation, and we will live actually perfectly righteous lives. We will also have citizenship and a status where we enjoy the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem, a place where righteousness 
dwells where there is no longer any death or mourning or crying or pain. These and more are bound up in the hope of our calling. That's what, uh, that's what we have with this calling. And this hope is critical for living the Christian life well. Uh, in his commentary on this passage, Ken Hughes tells the story of a man who was attempting to cross the frozen St. Lawrence River in the middle of winter, and he wasn't sure that the ice would hold him, but he was desperate. He had to get across the river, and so he sort of uh, uh, gingerly stepped out onto the ice, and he got down on all fours, right, to try and spread out his weight, and he was crawling across the ice, and when he was about halfway across the river, he heard a really loud noise behind him, and when he turned around to see what it was, to his horror, he saw a team of horses with a carriage coming down the riverbank and getting onto the ice and proceeding in his direction. And within seconds, this team of horses overtook him and traveled off to the other side of the river and up the riverbank and out into the distance because the ice was thick enough to hold the carriage and the horses, and there he was, still on all fours, cowering in fear as if the ice was going to break. If he had understood how thick the ice actually was and how safe he really was, he would have crossed the ice differently. And there's a parallel to that in the Christian life with understanding the hope of our calling. If you're in Christ this morning, the hope of your calling isn't thin ice, and it's not just a wish. And Paul sees it as directly connected to how we live practically, and I'm not just making that up, he says it explicitly in Ephesians 4. In fact, turn over quickly to Ephesians 4 verse 1. Ephesians 4 verse 1, because I want you to see this with your own eyes. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. If you come to know the hope of your calling, you will live more effectively as a Christian. Understanding the certainty of your salvation and eternal life will have a profound uh, effect on the way that you live. It brings joy, for example. Uh, it takes the edge off of disappointments and, and griefs because we know that they're temporary. They're not going to last forever. This too shall pass. Uh, I think the hope of our calling helps us to accept the more realistic expectations we have of, of what we can get out of life that we know we always should have had, uh, realistic expectations in a fallen world, because we're not looking for all our happiness in this world, and we understand that's a fool's errand, it's a fallen world, that's never going to come to pass. We were made for something better, something better that we won't experience till we're in the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. I think it helps us have more reali realistic expectations for what life can deliver to us. I think it helps us to persevere in the midst of difficulty and have a greater dedication to Christ. So that means then the hope of our calling is a very precious gift. Don't store it in a warehouse and forget about it. Get it properly framed, hang it uh, in, in your living room. It is a precious, precious gift. You have every reason to have great expectations for the life to come, not because you're great, but because of the calling that God has called us to, it is a great calling. It's a calling that includes knowing Him for who He really is 
And it's a calling that includes having an absolute expectation and certainty of eternal life and glorification and righteousness in the life to come. Let's pray.